All right, welcome back from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network. This is In Search of Sauce, celebrating the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm Brandon Hill, and I'm here today with Mickey and Tyler. Mickey, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? What's going on, everybody? My name is Mickey Hellerback. Uh, I'm a writer for Central Sauce as well as Euphoria Magazine and Notion. Um, you can just follow me on Twitter at Mickey Montebello or check out my website, MickeyHellerback.com. Check out all my pieces. All right. Hey, guys. This is uh, Tyler Jones. I am a regular writer in the Discovery section for Central Sauce. Um, I mostly and basically just write for Central Sauce Discovery, even though I have some interviews and I'm a poet. So look out for some poems from me in the future. Yep, and I want to give a special shout out for Mickey and Tyler. They've been behind a lot of the playlisting we've been doing lately at Central Sauce. Um, and the two of them have really been pushing that forward together. So shout out to them. And I am Brandon Hill, a writer, editor, and frequent co-host of In Search of Sauce. Uh, recently, I have put out sort of a package on Chris Patrick that involves a fully written profile as well as a transcript of our interview. Uh, you can check that out on Central Sauce, and you can subscribe to my writing newsletter to get updates like that and more uh, in with the link in my bio on Twitter, at Hoopla Hill. For our show today, we have three excellent pieces from excellent journalists. Uh, we have The Future According to Flying Lotus by Jeff Weiss in The Land Mag. We have What Do Black Women Need from Hip Hop in 2020 by David Dennis Jr. for Medium. And last but not least, we have How Spillage Village Hunkered Down in Atlanta and Captured the Chaos of 2020 by Grant Rindner. But first of all, uh, why don't we go ahead and talk about what we've been listening to lately. I started with Mickey on the intros, so Tyler, why don't you uh, share with us what you've been listening to lately? Um, For me, uh, a lot of the music I've been listening to lately has been, one, a lot of the pieces I've been writing about in the Discovery section. Um, my favorite might be Roller Coaster by Juicy Pear. It's such a funky, groovy joint. But uh, I've also been listening to the Spillage Village album Spillagen, which we will get into later. And last but not least, as the only, I think the only K-pop listening uh, person in this in this round, uh, I'm listening to Super One by Super M. Um, it is a, I, I would say it's the perfect pop album. It's extremely diverse, 15 tracks, and not only has English, but Korean songs, and then songs that have a mixture of the two. Um, it, it, I will, you will be hearing about this later in, in the resurfaced and renewed Essential and Unheard. Watch out for this this week. Ooh. Um, so, you will watch out. So, so, you'll see many reviews from Spilligion and Super One, along with a wonderful playlist um, from one of the best music, in my opinion, and some of our fellow writers in Essential and Unheard. Yeah, that uh, that Juicy Pear single was awesome. I actually got that submitted during my week covering submissions, and like I loved the song. But I, when I first heard it, I was like, "No, like Tyler, this this has got to be one for Tyler." Like, I know the, I know this song's for him. So, what have you been listening to, Mickey? Um, yeah. So Tyler, Tyler, that's kind of cool that we're kind of giving each other a little like bounce passes of of songs that we each are uh hearing on our weeks i haven't done that quite yet this week but i i almost did for one but i was like i don't think it's quite there but tyler did that uh 
to me during his week last week where he he sent me this song that's still i still i've been listening to that song over and over again i'm gonna forget the name of the band right now though but the song's name is clementine tree and it sounds like an exact mix of um britney howard foo fighters and lenny kravitz all in like one band song which is like kind of like how does this exist out there and i haven't heard it yet um so yeah tyler definitely hit me with the bounce pass on on that song and i definitely really really like that one it's so good. It's so good. Um, oh, it's so it's such a good song. Um this past weekend my my favorite release of this past weekend honestly as much as greatest Spilligion is is uh this single by Hope Tala um and now I'm going to forget the name of that song, but it's basically she does like um I don't know if if anyone's familiar with her music specifically, but she does kind of like um more reserved like Corinne Bailey Ray and when Leon Lahavis is kind of like more like within herself uh softer acoustic almost sounding pop music but this one is like she kind of blends that style with almost um like flamenco and like bullfightery music kind of as an undertone <laughs> yes. it's like it's such a it's very subtle but it, you like hear that kind of like flamenco like dun 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 beat in the background and it's really cool um but i was saying to tyler right before we started there's this guy um i think he's out of la his name is, I believe, don't quote me on this, Blast, but it's spelled B-L-X-S-T. Um, and he has this like eight song EP slash mini album called No Love Lost that I have literally listened to every day for like the past week, at least portions of it. Um, I think he's doing something really different because he has that kind of contemporary R&B vibe of like Six Black and like the kind of artists in that realm, like Bryson Tillery stuff, but he... I played, I was playing it and my, my mom heard it in the car on the way to the farmer's market this weekend. And she was like, Oh, I really <laughs> like this. And I was like, damn, he like made something that's for people that's like more modern R and B, but he connects to like the older R and B listeners. And I was like, that's cool. So I feel like he really has something. And, um, it's, that's literally one of my favorite projects this year. So check that out if you haven't. Yeah. And, uh, of course I, as we are going to discuss intensely, I listened to, uh, Spilligion that is, I mean, incredible, but we're, we're going to get into details on that. Um, along with, there's a bunch of other releases that this week that were just really good. The Action Bronson tape, Music for Dolphins, oh, yeah. um, is oh, probably something I have, actually, it's not even called Music for Dolphins. Only, it's only for Dolphins. Only for Dolphins, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like the best, or it's the, it's an Action Bronson project that I have enjoyed uh, more then, you know, it's been a while since I've enjoyed one of his projects like this much. So really digging that. And then um, Joji put out an album that, um, you know, kind of it will see it would have flew by my radar. But uh, one of my friends hit me up and like told me to listen to it. it was like they were really enjoying the Joji album. Actually, two of my friends did. Um, and I really got into that. It, it's great. Like it's fantastic um, as a complete project, like start to finish. And it's always like those ones always I enjoy when a project hits like that, especially when, you know, it could have completely like you could have completely missed it if it weren't for like some small detail or, you know, that one friend just recommending it and, and also like recommending it at the right time. Because, you know, your friends are always like they'll try to push you like, oh, like listen to this album, listen to this album and you'll forget about it or you'll put it off. Um, but I just had them both sort of hit me up at a time when I was like, yeah, like I'm looking for an album to listen to right now. So, um I feel like there's something else I'm missing. Oh, the uh, Lil Wayne Carter Five Deluxe um, has some great cuts yeah. off that too. That 
boost it, there's so many releases this week and he boosted like the carter five up to like 33 songs or something like that i didn't listen to the whole thing um i just sort of picked up where the normal tape left off but <laughs> the deluxe is really good and it's very much consistent with the sound of the carter five as opposed to um funeral the project that he put out like between carter five and the deluxe which is also i noticed was kind of weird because it's been two years since Carter five because Carter five was 2018 yes and he just put out a deluxe in 2020 which I thought was kind of odd I don't know how many uh, artists have really put that much of a delay and even an entire album between you know one project and I can tell you actually it makes you wonder oh <laughs> there's please, there's, please. there's one artist that did it it was also this Friday um, and I'm looking forward to his new album but it was Bryson Tiller Bryson Tiller oh, yeah. dropped a deluxe the yeah. version <laughs> of trap soul. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I did not expect that whatsoever because it's been, oh my God, it's been what, five years since Trap Soul? And which is one of my, honestly, what a, probably my top 20 album for me of this decade. Like I love Trap Soul, played the crap out of it. Um, and honestly, someday we'll, maybe somebody will write a piece on like, he really was the guy that, that basically gave artists like uh, Party Next Door, a new lane and a, a guy that will that doesn't i don't want to mention him right now just but like this new this trappy very drum bass um rap song soul he and i said he's the founder but he's definitely the one that popped it off and gave it a name facts i have literally oh, yeah. so much i want to say but i really do feel like we should get into these articles yeah we definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely need there was this this was one of the like heaviest release weeks for sure oh yeah all right so first article is mickey oh no ryan no sorry tyler <laughs> uh the future according to flying lotus go ahead tyler introduce the piece yes the future according to flying lotus by jeff weiss um I'm always fascinated with interviews because of uh, how the journalist will approach the artist. Um, will it be more conversational? Will it be just more straightforward questions or a mixture of the two? And Flying Lotus is one of the most eclectic, weird, <laughs> but brilliant minds in this space of music. And I think the best way to describe this piece is why one of the taglines is... Flying Lotus was quarantined at home, but it's unclear exactly in which galaxy. And that set the tone for the piece so much because the first uh, four to five questions are heavily music related about his place in music, uh, what he's thinking of his last release and where he came from. And then it goes into and then it goes left and going and talking about UFOs, his movies, his um, and just things that he's interested in. And I think if you could, you can always make a interview flow really well when it's not just, oh, let's talk about music one time. It's like, oh, what do you like as a person? What do you like? What's making you tick and what's influencing your music indirectly? And that's something I got a lot up from this piece. Um, and also his use of language just in the first three paragraphs describing uh, before actually getting to the interview avant mercury veil i was like that sounds like such a sexy phrase in like your second paragraph <laughs> um and i enjoyed it a lot um and there's just another quote i wanted to like take from it um 
Astral rhythm is rooted in the belief that the journey to the future often runs through the past. That's a bar. <laughs> that's, that's a bar to me. And when you have little gems like that in your interview with someone, and you, or you can grab, grab out of somebody else, similar to how uh, Brandon did with uh, Chris Patrick, I really enjoy those. Yeah, thanks for the shout-out. I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and take it from there. Um, the first paragraph of the... I mean, you referenced it in your uh, introduction, but the first paragraph of this piece is a better description of an artist than I have ever written over an entire piece. <laughs> like, just in the first paragraph of, the, of this alone. Um, so I actually wanted to read... Like, literally just read this paragraph to start off. So uh, Weiss starts off, It's one thing to imagine the future... It's an entirely different act of divination to create it. For the last dozen years, Flying Lotus has been LA's most dependable prophet. He twinned the liquid infinity of his great aunt Alice Coltrane with the avant Mercury veil of Aphex Twin and merged it into the crazy visions of an 80s baby from Winnetka raised on Dre, Smog, and Dragon Ball. The result was a one-man genre built from the bones of hip-hop and jazz, funk and drum and bass, IDM and ethereal soul but definitively Flylo. Raised on Parliament and Herbie, Radiohead and Madlib, he has become their peer and collaborator, the next in the lineage, a generational North Star for experimental genius. Like, that paragraph blew me away because when you're taking an interview transcript and you're thinking about, you know, at the start of your interview transcript, before you get into the conversation, you need to sort of sum up this person in a way that gives you the context you need to you know, really get the weight of the rest of the interview. And not only does like, does Weiss do that so well, but he does it so poetically. Like, yes. And yes, yes, a lot yes. of the times it's like the introduction to these transcripts you don't think of as the meat of the piece. You know, you think of this as just something that you sort of type up uh, quickly to introduce and then get to the interview, which is the important stuff. Um, and, you know, I don't know exactly how long he spent on the just the introduction to this or if the, he just naturally, like, flows this poetically. Um, but holy shit, like, the lead-in to the transcript <laughs> is just – was incredible. It's and then magical. When – which actually, this is – this interview is a few – maybe a month old, a few weeks old because I know um, Tyler sent it to me on Twitter – because, uh, you know, he obviously he knows how much like I like Flying Lotus. I've written about Flying Lotus. And uh, we had our previous conversation. We've talked about Thundercat before, which is like in the vein, obviously in the vein of Flylo. And the first thing I thought of was like when I read this headline and like saw like the theme to the piece was like, did this dude really just like out, like pitch an interview? Was he like, yo, I want to talk to Flying Lotus about aliens and UFOs. And at first I was like, that's like, that's hilarious. But then I was like, that's a really good idea. Like why like why does every, you know, interview topic have to be such an intense like analysis and thing in there? Like why can't we just hit people up and talk about like yo, like let's literally just sit down and talk about video games. You know, let's literally just sit down and talk about like your favorite movies that you watched or, you know, in the case of this interview, let's talk about aliens and UFOs. Um and you get so much so, more out of the know, artist through that as well. Exactly. It it gives you of a deeper lens into who they are when they're not just focusing on their product, you know, and their, uh, like their image. Right. Right. I think, um, 
I, I don't know if this had to do with like how he actually pitched the article or anything, but it kind of centers around it. He's a good person to interview in the pandemic, you, which is really clear and kind of centers <laughs> around his kind of like the pandemic on some level for all people has given us space to like do a lot of internal processing of like us as people and like think about all of the different things of the universe. So the, the piece centers around that idea that flying Lotus is this guy who kind of is like thinking about all these different things while he's making his music and doing all of his things that he's doing. And I think even, um, in the interview to me, the most interesting part too, which I think Weiss covered really well was the, the question just kind of about the pandemic and how, um, fly low answered it specifically because he was really existential about it very which um weirdly enough he was kind of like well it's kind of good and it is bad which for me reading that i thought was really interesting because it felt really positive even though the words that he was saying weren't really positive because generally when you hear people talk about the pandemic it's hard to not lean into the negative but having this kind of idea that you know it's just kind of like this is how the world goes and like this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen kind of uh it it helped me a little bit take a step back out of my own kind of, I think, developing, especially in this time, we're in a very kind of weird set of weeks. Um, my own kind of very glass half empty view of of what was going on around me in the world a little bit, um, just because he kind of like set this idea of like, well, this is what we got. So fuck it. We just got to kind of think about aliens and <laughs> deal with this, how we're going to deal with it and hide out and make music and you know, we're going to be like Japan and uh, we're just going to have to adapt to masks and they've already done it over there. So let's just see what we got with this. Um, and I, yeah, there's something about the tone that, that, that Weiss introduces within the interview style that's like, God, that just feels really right for the mind state, that the general mind state of right now. Yeah. Right. And you can, you can tell with Flylo too, it's not like, a conversation about aliens that you had, like, you know, you sat down, you were having a beer with your buddy at the bar and suddenly aliens came up and you're both just kind of talking about aliens. <laughs> like this would be more like if you sat down and brought up aliens at a conversation with your buddy at the bar and he started breaking out like theorems and calculations. Like it's clear, like clearly he's like well thought out about this stuff. This is like, it's not just coming off top. Um, and you can see that when he mentions like one of my favorite parts of the piece, when he mentions Blade Runner um, and he's talking about like what his vision of the future would be. And it's, again, when you're saying, like, where his words aren't that positive, but you feel positive about him saying them. Like, when he compares the future to Blade Runner, he says it would be like Blade Runner, but without the rain. Like, yeah. so you first, you think of Blade Runner and how, like, dark and, like, that's not a good vision of the future. But then he's like, but you take, take away the rain, which is such a, like, present aspect of those films. And it's like, okay, like, you sort of get a little, you know, you get the sunlight then. And then, uh, you know, he goes into, like, even the detail where he's like, okay, but without the flying cars, because imagine, like, you know, people drunk driving and crashing flying cars into houses and shit. And then he <laughs> connects that to, like, but we probably will have automated cars very soon. Like, he's just very, you know, meticulously, like, yeah. this is just stuff that just sits up there and, like, ruminates with him. So, yeah, something I like realized I had, oh, 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 thank you. I was like, something I realized uh, about Flying Lotus through this interview, which is, once again, underneath another reason why I love it is you would you would almost like if you're taking it at face value you're like oh he's really a pessimist but like no he's an optimist 
something about Flylo, what he does is like he'll his what he does is he analyzes every single bad situation and how it can go bad. But then he's like, you know what? We're we're better than that. As human beings, we are we can advance. We are going further. We are going to create and can keep creating. It's why he was uh, why he says he's also influenced by the younger cats as well right now. He's like, I want to be part of that conversation. I also want to be like uh, their OG. I want to be someone who's like part of the still the same crew. He's like. He's like one of his people is like 80 years old and still making music. He's like, he's one of the coolest cats ever. He's like, I want to be that guy. He's like, when I'm old, when I see the future, I see goodness. I see greatness. And I, that was something I really pulled from Flylo. I was like, this is, this is a human who's, who's aware of everything that's going around him. Everything, every single thing that's happening. But he's like, we'll rise above it or we'll make it better. Yeah. It's this weird thing of like, I don't know if this is like a term, but it's like this mix of like relaxed, but also proactive thinking. Like, yes. like he constantly like where, you know, the, the state of the world and the state of the conversation in the world, particularly on social media, but even between pe- person to person is very like impending doom esque. And you never really truly get that sense from him, but it's not unrealistic either. He's like, has this balance of being like, okay, you know, this is kind of the shitty thing that's happening, but also like at the end of the day, we're going to have to just adjust and see what it is. And maybe this shit will happen too. So it's not like, it's, it's that mix of like not being, he's not in a, in denial about anything but he's also like you know that's just part of life people have to to adjust and and figure it out and these are some ways that we might do that too yeah i think it's a great example of like of how genuine he is because when you talk about like people who are represented by their art or you know art is represented by the person who creates it um you know if you think about both of his like last albums you think about you're dead that entire album is about giving in and going along with the flow, um, you know, while it's it's recognizing everything around you and it's an acceptance of it and it's a moving within it that leads to the success. And then um, even Flamagra, which is ri- like ridiculously, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like current that ridiculously applies to what's going on in right now. The whole album is about the sort of like this fire burning around everyone, but everyone just... It's, since it's always been there, everyone just acts like it's normal. Um, and, you know, inspired <laughs> by the wildfires in California, just, you know, sort of like, because that's how observant he is. You know, he, like, living in LA, he is like, yo, like, you, y'all, you guys realize, like, there's fires, like, giant, massive fires burning around everyone. And everyone just, like, it's a normal part of their life. They just go on. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've got a buddy, my college friends, uh, both of them moved out to LA. So, like, they're not from L.A. or anything. You know, they moved out there, and they've been there for a couple of years now. But, of course, like, when I see shit about the fires, I text him. I was like, dude, like, you guys okay? Like, you know, shit is on fire. Like, is everything all right? And he's like, yeah, this this happens every year. Like, this, this happened last year. He was like, La- last year it was it was weird when no one was, like, freaking out about it. But, you know, year two, and now I'm already, like, accustomed to it. Right. Um, yeah, so, that- I think... Yeah, that yeah, reminds it's the me. way he articulates that. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, it just reminds me of that. That was one of my favorite parts of the piece. I didn't write a note about this, but I'm just remembering it. Is he was like, he said something about like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I. He asks him if he's gonna stay, if he ever plans on moving. He's like, Nah, I'm gonna stay here forever, bro. You know, like it's just kind of <laughs> part of who he is. And then, but then he's also like, but I'm pretty consistently tell other people like, don't move here. <laughs> the reason well the reason he said he was gonna stay here he was like man the traffic's terrible i'd never get out of here yeah. like, that, that, that was hilarious. Yeah. he's like the angry old man he's like i see everything that's happening 
Yeah. I'll let this people like, know, but I'm going to chill out. I'm going to be on my porch, like, smoking my J. Yeah. And just, He's not about <laughs> just to like, readjust to a new place. He's already, you know, he sunk his teeth into L.A. as a place, but he's, like, you know, just kind of burning down, too. So, like, don't, like, come out here if you're not here already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, something that I want to bring up real quick is, did, y- did y'all remember the part where he says he dislikes the term Afrofuturist? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and that was something I was like, oh, that's super interesting. I think that's the first time I ever heard someone almost like hate the connotation of it. But he was also, but he's also said he's like, I, he's like, I hate that term or like I dislike it, but I don't want to be left out of the conversation of it. He's like, I want people to know like whatever this sound is, even though I don't like the name of it, I am in it. I am in it. I am part of this culture. Um, and I just thought that was like a very interesting little tidbit. I was like. Huh. I, I was literally been the first artist that, that's kind of like part of that vein, like him, Kamasi Washington, um, basically all his guys from his label. And, and he's like, no, nah, I don't like that. He's like, I don't necessarily like that term, but I do always want to be part of that conversation. I don't remember exactly, Tyler. Did he specify uh, why he didn't like it? Um, he, he didn't. He said, I'm not, I think he said he can't explain why, which is right, what was, yeah, no, uh, that's what I'm remembering too. I was just wondering. Yeah. He was like, I can't explain why I don't like that term. But he's like, but I don't want to be, he's like, I, he's like, I'm, but I am part of it. I am, I am one of the, I am the guy. I am one of these guys. And he's so excited. He all, he was also discussing with that sense of sound and musicians that he's really into. He's like, I, he's like, he loves all the kids that are like basically getting into programming, really getting into music again. But he's like, if he's going to sign someone to his label, they have to play something. They just can't play on the computer. He was like, they need to know how to play something. He needs to feel the music flowing through them in a way. I loved the way that he talked about the guys on his label. Like, you know, I mean, especially with all of the the recent, like, Kanye publicity and just, you know, a renewed focus on like labels that are not doing it well um, or not being super honest. You know, it's really refreshing to hear someone and you you hear this out of J. Cole too a lot. I don't know how he talks about Dreamville, um, but to hear, you know, Flying Lotus and the way just the way he speaks about the guys on Brain Feeder, like gives you the impression that he truly, you know, he it doesn't feel like he's a label boss signing people to, for him to make money on his label it feels more like he is finding guys like him, guys who are as good as him, as honest as him, you know, as genuine as him, have the, sort of the same mindset. It's more like he's searching out peers that he really, really respects, and he's per- trying to bring them together to the same place where they can all, like, share that respect and grow and make music together. Yeah, it's that, it's that whole entire thing. He's like, I want to be part of the best of the best, and the best are going to be on my label, and I'm going to be inspired by them. He's like, I'm going to be part of this new generation, He's like, I'm gonna be part of the old generation, the new generation, and the next generation, like every single part of it. And that's why he wants this this just plethora of talent around him. And that's why I think he's so particular about the people he signs, but also why he has so much love for them at the same time for everyone he has, like Thundercat. Yeah, and it's grace it's great how you know how how well Weiss uh, is able to pull these sort of deeply like resonating quotes out of Flylo. Um, while interspersing them with conversations about aliens and UFOs, you know, because like I like I said, going into the piece at the beginning, like, you know, you come here for the conversations about aliens, but you stay for the genuine, like thought provoking person that is Flying Lotus. Um, and I think that that is something that like really shines out of the way that Weiss guided this interview.
and how he just, you know, he rolls with Flying Lotus. Because I got to think, too, how do you prepare for an interview with someone like Flying <laughs> Lotus, you know? You, you know what he likes and dislikes. It's because, like, every single, because he was, the a conversation itself, it wasn't, it didn't feel conversational, but he's made sure every single question flowed and, like, how he wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to grasp for straws or grasp for, like, like something that was not there. It was like every single question led to the next answer. And it was, it was fantastic. All right. Yeah. Again, shout out uh, Jeff Weiss on that one. So Mickey, go ahead and bring us into piece number two. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the, Name of this piece, just to repeat it real quick, is What Do Black Women Need From Hip Hop In 2020? Um, and the piece is composed by David Dennis. Uh, the piece also um, was published on, on Medium, but also on a publication within Medium called Level Magazine that's run by Jermaine Hall, who I don't... Um, if, if you all have listened to our uh, ISOS interview with Elliot Wilson, he shouted him out at the end as... Uh, person who we should also potentially interview but also who has really deep roots in the game of music journalism um but it's a it's just a really cool uh publication and we 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 shouted out a piece on that Elliot interview um which was written by Aaliyah King who's another a writer for Level um and this piece um taps into a kind of interview style that she also uses that I haven't really seen elsewhere um that I think is, I was uh, searching through Level specifically because I wanted to see if there was another piece that we could talk through on uh, this type of show, um, our regular scheduled programming, just to kind of flesh out what's so cool about that interview style. And then I landed on this piece and I felt like it was really poignant for the time. Um, so let me talk about the 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 interview style first. So basically, uh, and and the interview style for the other piece that we talked about in the Elliot interview is... One person composes the piece and then they interview multiple subjects around a specific theme or topic um, and lay out the interview as like one answer after another from a bunch of these different people. For the uh, Leah King interview, it was like, I don't know, Brandon, you tell me like 10, 10 to 12 people outlining this whole. <laughs> it it might have been even more than that, man. That one was that was crazy. It was wild. But it was about um, this kind of the kind of transition from from paper publications into uh, Internet blog stuff. And then like all this money was funneled into these websites, but they didn't kind of mismanaged it. Um, but it was just kind of getting this group perspective on this idea or theme. And then this article does uh, a bit of the same thing with the 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 interview process. But this one limits to four women. Um, around a singular theme and getting, and it's, it's sequenced in a, a set of a few questions, um, but to just kind of get a well-rounded perspective uh, of an idea. Um, and so why, why I think that this, this piece is particularly poignant um, is because it talks about what has become a, a very, very relevant issue within the kind of scope of music and hip hop itself which is um, kind of, well, black, black women being the most disrespected group of, of people within any space, the world, the United States, but also specifically even within hip hop. But it does it in, in a way um, that I think is very, very astutely done by David Dennis, which is giving 
women who are ingrained within the culture of, of hip hop and hip hop journalism, as well as activism, um, kind of a structure to express not only their grievances, but also their love for hip hop and their investment in it. Um, and I feel like that's just the, the, the most effective and important way that I've seen anyone go about it. Um, rather than kind of a bunch of men going back and forth about their ideas about what should happen to change things and like doing this sort of performative <laughs> activism of like, y'all need to stand up for blah, blah, blah. Why don't we just give the women who are within this culture already a platform to talk about their perspective on everything and how they think we can change it because that's actually the real way that we progress. Um, and I just think, I think he, he sets up the piece, uh, really well. Um, and he lays out his intention straight from the get with his introduction in a really, um, poignant way. The first quote that I wrote down was, he says, the onus of making hip hop culture a space that values black women lands on the men in charge. Um, is it, it's just a statement of, Listen, I mean, this co-aligns with, I'm a white guy, so I've, I've been thinking a lot about <laughs> my responsibility to, to do a similar thing for, I need to help create the space to where black voices get uplifted. I have a responsibility to do so um, because I am... <laughs> within society the societal structure i am the one with the privilege so i it's on me to create the space which again david dennis uses his platform to do so um so he he states the intention and then backs it up with um the type of piece that he writes um then he also makes sure to lay out what he is not trying to do with the piece which is also very important to say when he says so in speaking to these women, the intention is not to burden them with holding our hands through the process, but to hear their experiences and use them to challenge ourselves to demand more. So he's not looking for a pat on the back, uh, telling you that you're okay or that we are okay, but creating this space that hopefully they feel comfortable enough to bless us with ideas that can help the culture as a whole become better because... Um, the things that these women describe in this interview are only things that I believe, and it seems like David Dennis believes, hold back the the culture of hip hop as a whole from really moving forward and being um, as better. moving and important as it really better moving and important as it could be um, within the scheme of music itself and the country. Um, so yeah, so I um, I have about fifteen. <laughs> quotes um <laughs> and different things to go through but before we do that and a lot of you know i i have a feeling potentially you guys have quotes to share too because it's it's that's one of this is a piece where it's most important again to to kind of take david dennis's lead and highlight what these women have said but i wanted to give you guys an opportunity before we get into those to talk about what you thought about the piece too so brandon or uh, tyler whoever yeah. wants to go Oh no, it's um as, as soon as I got done reading this piece, I sent it to my friends immediately. As 
as a straight black man, I it, it, I remember I saw a statement a while back saying straight black men are the white people of black people. And at first, when I first uh, saw that, I was like, I don't, I was like, what? And then I had to think about it, read what they were saying. And then this immediately applied to this interview and, and the, uh, this wonderful piece. Because the, the first question that he asked them is, what, <laughs> when did you fall in love with hip hop? And the second question after that, do you still love hip hop? And as a black woman, they're giving their experience like it's very conflicting. It's almost like anything in this environment right now hasn't proven to you that it cares about you. It doesn't care about their female black, the female black peer in rap. We're seeing what's happening with Meg. We're seeing what's happening with Azalea Banks. So many other like black uh, female artists and how they're being treated. And just hearing them say, we need you guys to speak up. We need you, we need your help. We're not going to go anywhere if, we are the whole, if we're the ones that's the whole entire time. And we can't just guide you. You have to be active. It's the whole entire protect black women thing isn't a thing if you don't actually do it. What's the point? Yeah, um, yeah that reminds me just, just to, yeah, I feel like... I want to put, I'm going to be pulling in quotes whenever you guys say something that reminds me of one. Um, so this is more towards the end, but this is one of my, my, I think of the most important, um, things. And I, I believe it was in response to like, what would be some version of like the most revolutionary or what would be the most helpful thing that could happen. And, uh, Shanita Hubbard, gives what I think is of the most poignant responses of the whole thing. And she said, or what would, what would it look like if it was where, where she would want it to be? And she said, it would look like walking in a barbershop and having conversations about what happened to Drew Dixon instead of those talk talks being DOA. Um, and so Drew Dixon, just so people know, who is also uh, a woman who comments in this interview, um, uh, while also being a very, very well-renowned hip hop producer, um, for many, many years also was the central character in the documentary, which I'm bl- going to blank on the name about, uh, uh, Russell Simmons and his, the, the claims and, um, of sexual assault and rape. Um, um, but she, yeah. So it's just this idea that the, a, you know, a revolutionary or a huge changing act would just be, um, if you could walk into this space, which I'm, you know, is would be considered a black male space and just hear a a conversation started about why about Drew Dixon in that circumstance and have it be a normalized thing where these conversations are okay to have within kind of regular spaces where people are debating issues. And I I think a big part of that, you know, I think a big part of that too is more than just making those conversations acceptable in the average space is making those conversations acceptable, or not just acceptable, but making those conversations a regular regular thing in men's spaces. Um, you know, she, she, they, I, I, you know, forget which specific person mentions it, but uh, they compare, you know, like locker room talk, and and locker room talk being a contributing factor to why women are devalued. Like women shouldn't just be respected when they are, you know, in front of us or with us. 
women need to be respected in all aspects of the, you know, when, when, even when it's just men discussing women, because when you get, when men have these kinds of discussions and they think it's acceptable because they're in a circle of only men, um, you know, those conversations perpetuate themselves, uh, which also, you know, contributes Mickey. I wanted to mention, especially what you mentioned about how, uh, David Dennis presented this piece is to me a great example of, you know, like what it means to be a good journalist. Um, because he, you know, he obviously, this is a subject that was at the front of his mind because he felt enough to go and do the work to put this piece out into the world. But he did it in a way that, you know, he did, he didn't just write down his thoughts and he didn't just write down his opinions and put that out there. Um, you know, for example, like if I, you know, I'm a, I'm a white hip hop journalist So, you know, and as you as well, Mickey, so, you know, we're always trying to be conscious about, you know, I'm trying to be conscious about what I say and how, how valued is what I say as a white person? Like, when is it better for me to have an interview and go to get someone else's perspective and let them say it? You know, is, is my, is my role to just continue putting out these thoughts and experiences that I have not had, that I, you know, am not related to, or is my role as a journalist to amplify the voices, the thoughts, and the opinions of the people who have had these experiences. Um, and so, you know, while, while David is an excellent writer, he didn't just sit and write a, th- a think piece on this subject. He thought, okay, who are the most prominent black voices and how can I most, black female voices, and how can I most successfully amplify them? Um, and I think that that is, is exactly what he's done. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, because it would have been it would have been too easy. It would have been a layup, honestly, if he would have just written this piece by himself and be like, "Oh, here's my thoughts, guys. Do better." It's it's and then it's another thing to be like, "Here's my initial thoughts. Now, here are the women you need to listen to." The majority of the piece and the meat of the pieces there is are, are the quotes from them. Um, Hubbard is saying it looks like um, when they're saying like, "What is what does it look like?" It looks like black men in our culture doing the work with us, not for us. It, it, it's it's unity together because I think they realize more than a lot of other people right now if it's just them by themselves because it's a it's a culture dominated by men especially in hip hop you're it's unfortunately it it's sad but you're gonna be muffled you're going to be outcast and that's and that's unfortunate that is it is it's it's unfortunate that the culture has created something like um like that and. And and, it, and when you if you really do care, then it's going to hurt, and you have to realize that. If we're going to mend it, you have to work together. Yeah, yeah. Another quote that um, really stuck with me, just you know, in, in the scope of who she is and what she's given to the game, and, and she's talking about earlier in her career. Um, it's kind of what you're talking about, Tyler, is creating a space that's safe for people, especially these women who are have done so much to to uplift the culture itself. And Danielle Smith talked about, um, who's the former editor-in-chief at, at Vibe magazine for many, many years. Um, she said, I used to climb on top of speakers to not be with men, either questioning why I was there or trying to touch me. And then it's you know, this is someone who's literally going into a space, you know, of hip hop, trying to get to the core of, of what's happening in it and cover it 
and cover it well and, and uplift the voices of it. And she can't even exist in the space without fear of being sexually harassed or assaulted. And, and, uh, this is, this is someone who really has given her entire life or her entire adult life really to, to being a voice for the culture itself, especially Bay area culture, which, um, she talks about in the beginning and, um, why she cares for hip hop. So it's, it's really, um, it's real. I, this piece truly accomplishes what it sets out to do in the sense that it gives these very clear first steps of things that can actively change, create a safe space. Um, legitimize on first thought that these women are here to uplift the culture that everyone cares about. Um, and then at the very end, you know, get those people out of power who are part of the culture that is detrimental to, to, to the, the growth of, of everything itself. Um, yeah. Believe so them. on that, that specific quote too, that you're referencing, um, from, uh, from Danielle Smith about having to climb on top of a speaker, you know, make sure that men won't touch her. She mentions the same thing, like she's backstage doing her job and that the men just assume that she's there and that she wants to have sex with them. And she's like, no, I'm work. Oh my God. I got to read the exact quote. Hold on. Let me find it. Uh, if I was backstage, people often assumed you wanted to have sex right then and there. They'd want to take you in the linen closet and I'm like, I'm working. Then they assume you want to get paid for sex. At the time, I was running on adrenaline, and I took it as a part of the way things were. So, you know, we're talking about a, two, a twofold issue here. It's not just the fact that these things happen. It's the fact that, you know, for so long, women were led to believe that that was just to be expected, just to be assumed. Um, and then on that, on, you know, on that point, to exactly what Mickey's saying, uh, which he pulled directly from the piece, is getting these people who have perpetuated this culture um, and who have... You know, even if they are not an active member of it, they have been complacent in the process of it happening. Uh, Danielle Smith says specifically that this is not just a problem tied only to hip hop. Um, women and black women have faced these sort of issues across, you know, many, many different mediums. Um, and on that part where Danielle, I, hold on, I got to find it in because I scrolled back up. Um, on, so on that part where Danielle says, you know, she leads the answer to the question, what does it look like to be in a hip hop that welcomes and values you and that you're not at odds with yourself to be a part of, um, which addresses, you know, like Tyler said, the sort of combative, like, when did you fall in love with hip hop? Do you still love hip hop question? Um, and, you know, right at this section, what I'm, I'm thinking before we even get into the specifics is in my head, I'm thinking like, okay, I know, you know, and even in a sense on this podcast right now, it's likely that we're probably having this conversation to people who aren't part of perpetuating this issue um, they're, you know, most likely these aren't the people who, you know, they're, they already agree and they're a part of like, I can't ever imagine being in a working space and putting a woman through that or, you know, being in a working space where it's taken for granted that this is going to happen. Um, and that this is the kind of pressure that's going to be put on woman. So, you know, I'm thinking, all right, we need to get some of these, you know, some of these guys out of leadership positions, out of roles where they are role models and icons and that they have perpetuated this kind of thing. And I'm thinking this in my own head through the conversation. And then the very next quote um, is from Drew Dixon, who says, 
Uh, I'll just read the full quote. We need to reform the C-suite in the record industry. People who rose to positions of power in that industry while enabling rape, rape culture need to go. And I promise you, you don't need to be a toxic human being to make hit records. I made hit records for a decade. So why don't we find some of the people who aren't toxic and put them in positions of power? It's just like talking about the police. There's some things you can't reform. If the philosophy is toxic, the entire organization needs to be torn down and rebuilt. And a lot of these C-suites in the music industry needs to be torn down and rebuilt with the younger people and people who are not complicit in decades of rape culture and abuse. And this ties right back in to where Danielle says that this is not an issue that is solely specific to hip-hop. And, you know, it's, it's at a place where, you know, people in our generation, people who are in their 20s, people who are in their young 30s, um, are in, in a role where we now, you know, we have enough experience and we have enough motivation. Um, and we are, it's young people, like we just talked about with Flying Lotus, it's young people who are breaking the ground and it's young people who are pushing things forward and they're doing this work. And these young people pushing these things forward aren't, you know, bogged down by having been complicit in rape cultures that has permeated all of society. But these older nasty cats who have been, you know, they are, have a vice grip on their power and leadership and people don't want to let that go. Yeah. And I think if we want to find the first way to stop it all, right, what's the first way to uh, stop, stop being silent. And, and the question, how is hip hop failing black women? Clusser Brooks, uh, Brooks goes first saying, and this is the quote and basically how you should move forward. Hip hop is failing us in its silence and its inability to actually care about black women wholeheartedly. Misogyny and patriarchy is the water we swim in. We're all around it. As you said, these locker room talks, all these things, we're around them every single time. If you want to change them, as men, as, as me, as a black man, I have to say something. If I, if I see it, call it out. That's the first step. That's, that's how you protect black women. And that's how you create these safe spaces. Yeah, and I, I think it... Um goes back to these are taking this opportunity like David Dennis did to these are women who have invested time and love hip hop itself and it's worthwhile based on the understanding of their accomplishments and what they have to offer to create a space where they can thrive um and it's the next step is taking in pieces like this and listening and having an understanding that we will only be that hip hop as a culture will only be at the peak level it can be at if, if, if that happens. And it's the same, same kind of understanding. And I like the tie in of, of the, the parallel to <laughs> police is that the culture is so ingrained that it needs a restart. Um, and the first way to do to do that, like Tyler's saying, is is actually creating a, a real space where it can be talked about and listened to, like this article is doing, and then taking the people who make up the power structures and replacing them. Um and uh yeah, the there's just not a not enough pieces where voices are actively elevated like this. Um there's a lot a lot of think pieces and and I and not not enough okay well let's let's listen to the people who are getting hurt the most 
and who are not having enough safe spaces. Uh, and yeah, the, I, I just think that this piece really provides that in a way that I just have not read otherwise. Yeah, I actually, as, uh, you know, as we continue this conversation, as I'm thinking, um, I actually want to retract a bit of what I said a minute ago when I said that it sort of had a preaching to the choir feeling because I thought of an example um, that, you know, it's not as if for one for young people that that the battle is already won and that everyone already thinks this way and that this is a thing um, that was probably a little too um, optimistic, a little too positive of a statement because I thought of the specific specific example that's obviously hanging over this piece with the um, Meg and Tory Lane's deal. And, Christ. you know, just seeing, you know, like I said, like maybe I was a bit too optimistic because it's clear that there are still, you know, people who are younger and people who are very, it's not, it's not just people outside of, um, you know, outside of the genre who are attacking these women. It is also young, you know, it's young people you who are involved in hip hop and who are involved in the culture and have the pieces to put this together and understand it, but they're the ones, you know, people are still streaming that Tory Lanez bullshit and having it go number one on Apple Music. So um, I think, you know, the message there is to be, you know, not be complacent, to be active in vocalizing it and not being silent. And like we talked about, you know, making it even the like a regular and a common topic to approach in all male circles even. Um, to start, you know, making the changes in those conversations. Yep. Yep. Just as, as the ending statement for me, listen to black women, just listen to them, man. Yeah. I mean, um, it just has to be enough when someone is important to the culture, like Megan, the stallion says he shot me just has to be enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, thank you, David Dennis Jr. for, uh, bringing these voices together on one piece and amplifying them for us. Now, I'm going to introduce my piece. Um, so I, big surprise, brought a Rolling Stone piece. Uh, it's called How Spillage Village Hunkered Down in Atlanta and Captured the Chaos of 2020, and it is by Grant Ridner. Um, so this is a interview with uh, pretty much the whole group of Spillage Village. I'm not sure if he conducted them separately, but you know, one of the things I like the most about this piece is that rather than just it's sort of a, a counter a counter to the piece we just discussed with how that interview was presented where you know he interviewed a group of people and then you know juxtaposed their like direct quotes underneath their questions to drive a sort of thematic conversation so in this case we you know we have an interview that's with a also with a group of people um, but he chose not to present the conversation in a transcript form and he instead just sort of wrote about the conversation and about the album um, and it really like the overall feeling I get from this piece is being in a room with spillage village almost hmm. like even when um he's not using direct quotes he's using things that still make you know they still give the feeling they really like put you in the room and you know one specific example is when he goes into this great bit about how the spillage village crew um recorded the album over a two-month period basically during lockdown all within one house uh, they all had like their own recording studio so it was like a little recording collaborative camp and uh he mentions 
that they just as much of the music process was them being together and being in a community and approaching these these issues that are going on during this lockdown and this quarantine and, and 2020 in general, approaching them as a group, you know, like not dealing with any of these situations on their own, uh, being just as much a part of the music making process as the actual recording. And, you know, involved in that is also they talk about bonfire nights. They talked about watching the Michael Jordan documentary and then this great little section on how um, they would play board games. Monopoly. Monopoly. <laughs> yeah. And the way like that is an example of like why this feels like you're in the room is just in the small detail when he presents this section of the piece. He says, and each member uh, brings up board games unprompted like that detail. <laughs> because you know once once you get so okay so the great the, the bit the bit here about monopoly is that apparently the spillage village crew uh would play monopoly and jid and uh wow great are like really into monopoly and would always like kill everyone in monopoly and everyone else like hated the game and it's this just really genuine and hilarious anecdote but he adds the fact to it that they all brought it up unprompted and it makes it it highlights it as such a more like exciting like bit of the piece like i don't know if i'm using the right words to describe it but the fact that you know he could have got in the first interview when someone brought it up he could have been like oh this could be a really funny thing to contribute to the interview i'm going to ask everyone else about monopoly but that's not what happened like literally every single other person brought up monopoly and then he puts these quotes together um in a way that like you know presents each individual person's like like he says like both jid and wow great had to uh, you know, get it off their chest that uh, they had to like give their piece about Monopoly. <laughs> and then like so, Jim complains that everybody else is communist. Is like everybody hates this game. Me, me and Wild Great yes. killed everybody. Everybody else is communist. And I was like, this is yeah. this is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So for me too, like, and the fact that this this piece came out, um, the I believe it was literally the day before or the night before the album released. Um, and, you know, so I read it right away because I've been really anticipating this album and I just, I love, oh, we know. like, the message of Spillage Village. Um, and me and Tyler had talked a lot about anticipating the album going into it and, like, what to expect and how they were going to conceptually approach this. So reading reading this piece really got me, whereas most of the time I'll listen to something and then I will read after the fact, um, reading this piece really got me prepared. Like, it prepped me really well for the album by putting me sort of into the environment that it was made in. Um, and overall, I think that that's the best thing the journalist did because this album had a really strong effect on me in, in, like, in the sound of it and in, in the message and just in like... And I think it's, an, it's important to have the context of when it was made because you get a lot of, you know, perspectives in music where people are giving their thoughts and their opinions and they're giving what they feel and what they believe. And they're putting that image out there in their music. Um, but you know, sometimes is it, you know, you get the, the perception, is it about the music? Is it about the artist's beliefs? Is it genuine? You know, what, what is the overall feeling behind this? Is it, is it a product or, you know, how, how is the artist approaching it is important to the context. And with, with a message like this that's sort of delivered um, in this really religious context of Spilligen, uh, it's, it's important to know how the creators are 
sort of feeling and thinking going into it. And the way the way that uh, Ridner describes like this album wasn't planned, you know. Um, Jid had rented the house to work on his third studio album. And then always, like, there's the quote in there uh, from their manager uh, where he says, you know, Spillage Village has never been a studio group. They've always been a house group because that's how they started making music in Atlanta was in the Spillage Village house that they all shared. And they literally recorded and produced in the house. So they took and brought that environment back again. And that was sort of the overall mission of uh, Ridner's piece was to present that environment so that the reader can read it, they can understand the environment, join the environment, and then listen to the music and still feel like they're in that room, you know, still feel like they're in that environment. And he caps that off with literally like the first sentence of the piece um, that I thought would just immediately like just stuck out. He said, many people have found themselves back in their hometowns this year, grappling with a rapidly changing, unpredictable world from environs they've known all their lives. And that was a really, really key piece of this album and of this piece is that these issues that have come up in 2020 um, aren't, you know, they're not new issues. The pandemic has only drawn light and exacerbated issues that were already failing and it has just sped them up. And that is, you know, it would be as much as this album is so rooted in the energy of 2020 it is a disservice to the album to tie it specifically to 2020 because, you know, 2020 has just made it more, like brought it more out of them, what was already there, thoughts they were already having and already struggling with. And it, it made them sort of come out on this album and as a group, as a collective together, but they've always done best and just face it together and put that into music. Um, so I feel like I've been talking for forever. But. <laughs> <laughs> for, maybe forever in a day, but like, you know, it, we enjoy it. Um, because I kind of, I, I share the same sentiments. Uh, I, I think I've told you this in our, in our chat, but like to say it again, Spilligion might be the most relevant album of 2020. Um, and I think it will always be relevant, at least in like, it, it's, it's capsulizing such a time as an American <laughs> and what we're going through as you as you were saying earlier this the one entire thing with the pandemic isn't these as you're saying these problems were there they were just amplified the fact that our government can't provide for its people well the fact that like oh everything's on fire we're gonna learn how to live in the fire instead of actually dealing with the problem that was something i was like oh wow and there was a quote by uh olu slash johnny venus saying uh because I, I there's something that i was struggling with i was like when especially when the first problems of the pandemic and um the just multiple killings of black people over the summer i was like do i want to listen to anything do i want to even write anything I, and i kept going through it and and it was nice to see that humanity with them as well and olu saying does making music really even matter right now in a global pandemic does anybody care right now because life itself is on fire. And I, I was like, it, it touched me because I was like, how I feel the exact same way. Does anyone want to hear the words that I'm saying? Does anyone want to listen to, listen to or endure, like read what I'm writing? And I thought that was incredibly humanizing of all of them since they all share that sentiment.
Yeah, I think that thought process really comes through in the music. Um, I, within the kind of like conversation around music in the quarantine, I've seen a lot of people talk about kind of who's going to make the album and who's going to make the song of the moment that really kind of exemplifies. And I've heard a lot of people being like, no one's really making music for right now. Why is no one doing that kind of thing? Um, I've seen that yeah, multiple times. But I think uh, what you guys are touching on is, is and Rinder really taps into is the the organic it was just like he taps into that in in the structure of the article is like you know the pandemic happened well jid was making an album pandemic happened they got locked in the house and like oh i guess we should make this album and then throughout the process like you're saying tyler they were making sure to have a full thought process of like okay should we be making this music right now does this feel natural does this feel like it's going to be something that's poignant and that um still to me comes through absolutely absolutely the most on what is still of my favorite songs of the year which is end of days um and i think yes. my favorite quote from the article itself um is rinner's uh, analysis of end of days um which he says i'll just read the quote the song finds the sweet spot that many musicians have spent the entire quarantine searching for it's topical and feels like a product of this frightening moment but without being so on the nose as to come off exploitative or gimmicky. And I think that's exactly what that song accomplishes. And I absolutely do not think that I've heard any music that really taps into the core of what that really is because it, it, it breaks down each individual perspective of each of the people who are living in that house and see, and we're seeing from like a quarantine space, what was going on on the outside and then they use that kind of bonfiery element, which he talks about a lot in the piece because they had literal bonfires in the way that they delivered that song. This is like a, a group moment that is also an individual moment. And that's how it, I think, kind of feels to everyone is we're all kind of going through this together, but we're all going to react to it in our own ways. And it's if we're going to put out music, which it really seems like Spillage Village thought through, it has to be exactly tapped into the reality, a thought through reality of, of what we're experiencing. And um, yeah, I think Rinder really captured that really well in the piece. I agree. Right. It very much, it very much ties back to, you know, the fact that these, these troubles that have come up um, and he even, you know, specifically mentions in, in, in the piece that like, while, while they're all locked into this house, you know, not literally locked, but essentially locked in this house together, um, they have to witness on TV, you know, the highly publicized murders of black men at the hands of police. And, you know, like I, like it says at the very beginning of the piece, you know, they're back home dealing with familiar problems that have been, you know, put to, like, put to new heights. Um, and it, it's sort of like, how do you handle that chaos, right? It's it's like, you know, using an analogy from earlier we talked about with Flamagra. It's like there's this ever-present fire going on. And then while the fire is small in there, you know, people are living with it. But then all of a sudden that fire grows and it gets bigger. And you have a choice now to adapt again to live with the fire or use the newfound attention on the fire to try to make some kind of change. Like how, 
how do you process the chaos? And, you know, you get, you get the feeling there's a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of like twofold statements to, to this album. Like you, you very much get the feeling that they, it's an acceptance of an inability to control the chaos, right? It, it, it seems, you know, you, you can't just continually and continually strip yourself bare by, you know, going like fighting something that is, that is just the chaos of 2020 as things continually just keep happening and keep happening that are out of your control and you have to watch these things happen. You have to figure out, you know, what is the best way to approach it? What's the most strategic way to approach it? Uh, so a lot of that album is, is it's an acceptance of not having that control, but it's also the love and energy that you use to fight it and the direction that you choose to like aim that energy and how to process that. As you said, Mickey, how to process that um, as a group, you know, as a society as a whole, but also how to process that internally. Um, and both of those are like, just, you know, they're equally important, not just to yourself, but they're equally important to how everyone moves forward. Yeah. And I'm sure Brandon was expecting me to say this because I'm from Baltimore, but there was like a specific tidbit. Yeah. Really <laughs> First of all, it's cool to see Baltimore and Rolling Stone, but I've been here for the, the epitome of, of, uh, not the epitome, the, the majority of the pandemic um, and definitely throughout all of the protests and the reaction. And it was really um, interesting and cool for me to see Jordan and um, Hollywood JB, who are both from Baltimore, talk about um, how Baltimore specifically was reacting to the protests and um, places like Minneapolis being burned down, which is that after Freddie Gray, it already happened here. So... Um, it's and you hear it there's i wish I, I should have pulled a quote for there's something that jordan bryant says is one of his verses that kind of taps into that feeling of like a little bit of been there done that but that's kind of been the, a little bit of the vibe being here and going to a few protests in baltimore is that it's it's been a, a different kind of place to experience that kind of uprising that has happened more of a countrywide thing because we you know baltimore burned the city down i mean not the whole city but there was a big uprising here and it burned to CVS and it was the whole thing. So that energy existed in 2015. So it's been really interesting to see like, you know, you know, Baltimore is definitely really tired of the shit. It's, uh, and, and, um, I mean, there's definitely like an energy of like, goddamn, when will it stop that I, I heard a little bit in, in Jordan's tone on the album. And, uh, it, it was just, it, it was, you know, it meant something to read that in Rolling Stone to like see that perspective on such a like huge platform of like, you know, um, I, I just heard a guy speak in this weekly forum that, you know, Baltimore, Baltimore is the, the center of American apartheid. Uh, this writer who is a teacher at, at, at uh, Morgan State, um, professor at Morgan State wrote. And uh, yeah, I, I just I I found it really poignant and and and. Uh, important to read that that perspective by Jordan even it was just you know it was just a few lines but it I just you know that perspective of of like the kind of Baltimore feel you know it's a, a lot of us say it's like a small town in a decently you know metropolitan city but to feel that individual energy of Baltimore brought to a big publication like that felt really really dope to see and really important yeah and brought to that energy brought to the album by by Jordan and Hollywood JB yeah um for me i'm in atlanta so I, i'm in this i'm in the city where this album was created i was and i can 
as I went through the pandemic, as we went through Richard Brooks, as we went down, as the riot at the CNN Tower happened, I, I was there. I felt that energy when it happened. I saw them throw the tear gas. I had to run. And I, I knew what my heart was going through. And the fact that I could find that relation in these quotes in the article and through the music, it, it brought me some sense of sanity. To be black is realizing hell is hot, but it's a Monday. So get used to it. And I think that this was the energy Atlanta had um, for a lot of it. And, that, and yet you still had this feeling of dark optimism in the piece. They're like, we're used to this. So this is why we're going to still make music. This is why we're going to run, run with it. Because if we don't say anything at all, then what are we? Um, and it was, and it was that first, and they, and they were able to get that first record out, which I think was brilliant. Psalm Sing, that's what set the tone. It, with it being the third song, but really the real second song on the album and the real opener and what set the tone for everything else. I was like, okay, that's the tidbit I needed. That's what set the tone for everything. And able to read that and have that expressed through all of Spillage Village was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, Mirba killed that song. And I think uh, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but I think a really interesting note to make on that song, um, Psalm Sing, the one that set the tone for the whole record, was um, uh, a bass line from Benji, who is the newest member of the collective. Um, I'm not, it doesn't make sure if it specifically is the one that he mentions in the story where Benji's playing the bass line and Mirba comes into the room. I think it is. Um, but the fact that he, that he also mentions yeah. if that is, that is the specific example. Yeah. So the, um, so Benji is Christo's brother and Christo invited him to the sessions for what he expected to be just a few days of working with his brother, working with Spillage Village. And then the lockdown happens and two days turns into weeks and Benji is there throughout this whole collaborative process. And, uh, you know, it's really Mirba starts writing to that baseline. So you have this outside member of a collective, you know, he's familiar with them, but as he even references, um, it's his first album creating environment is locked in the house with Spillage Village. Um, and so, you know, you have this outside person coming into such an established group and just setting one baseline that ends up setting the tone for this whole album. So, I mean, you know, that's just a really, it, it goes to show how spillage village and um, they do a great job in the article of this actually too, of it'd be really easy to look at from the outside, how the spillage village sessions are sort of just another Revenge of the Dreamers sessions. You're like, oh, okay, it's Dreamville artists. They're very collaborative. They're working, you know, they have an open door policy coming in and out. But he sets the distinction very easily from the Dreamers sessions through this article with how much that it is a, you know, not just a, we're in the studio making music, like what's the music we're going to make, but a a community who is thinking through and processing and dealing with, you know, the trauma that's always been there the trauma that's being brought out more now um, and just all these incredibly difficult personal issues to deal with and processing them, you know, as a whole. Um, 
because I'm sure, you know, for me and I'm sure for a lot of people, it's felt like ever since like March that sort of, and this is one of the ways I've just actually, I've been describing the album to people I've been suggesting it to, is that it's really felt like since March that walls have been just closing in, like continually just closing in tighter and tighter. Like every, every time that you think that you have an opportunity to get some kind of relief, then something else happens and the walls are like back to closing in. And hearing this song and specifically um, the last two songs on the album, Happy and Jupiter, after hearing and feeling these people come together and deal with this chaos and, you know, still find love. And then the sound of, you know, of Happy and Jupiter and and the gospel rhythms and... Um, there's another song where they're all singing together sort of like around the bonfire, but you know, they do the same on Jupiter and it's just this chorus and it feels so like, like it felt like the first full breath that I'd taken since, you know, the whole pandemic and since the lockdown really got on and it, and it gave, it felt like, you know, giving new tools to sort of deal with this chaos through an understanding and just through you know, through the love and through the, the the processing that this group of people went through. And that's what makes it so much stronger than just like the Dreamer sessions or just a session where it's, you know, people were making music. Because the entire album is about that process. It's just, you're, you're connecting a lot of dots for me, Brandon, funny enough. It's just like... Uh... To the same way that 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 baseline and that tone set the album, like just releasing end of days first is such an important first move. And I feel like they probably put a lot of thought process into that of like, this is what we're about to drop. It's not like that was the first done. It was like, this is going to actually be the tone of the entirety of what the album centers around. And then also how much the album does center around Mariba's voice. And I, I remember just when I first heard end of days, just her her verse stuck out to me so crazy. And that's still one of my favorite verses of this year but I, I'm just looking at the lyrics while you were talking and, and I was listening and uh, just the way that she and and based on what you were saying before too Tyler the way she starts her verse and ends the verse is so much of that like this is the initial idea and this is what we have to do to fix it like her her verse starts with the line it's been like apocalypse since I was on the teat like Tyler was saying what was the thing that you said specifically it's, it's oh it was all uh, oh yeah as when and you're a black person ending, it's hell it's hell it's hell. And then the, yeah, yeah. And then the last line, kind of what you were saying, Brandon, um, fuck with any kinfolk, you're going to have to get through we, which is like the only way we're going to get through this is love and c- kind of coming together to, to combat it as, as a group. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, and it feels that way. There's like the way that they kind of place Mariba's voice throughout, uh, I think is wildly important for, for, for the functionality of the project. And it, it feels like she kind of sums everything up. Um, yeah, and I think that's just dope. It's it was funny. You have this black woman who's basically the uh, the guider, the almost like the vocal narrator of the album in a way. She sets the tone and she sets the melody, for, like moving forward throughout the whole entire album. Which brings once again brings us back to women in hip hop and how important they are. All right. Well, that's the thing. I think it's clear we all three of us <laughs> love that album. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not even. I'm not. I'm. I'm not even kidding though. I have already. I've probably played it front to back like 
15 times already. I believe you. I, uh, I, I believe uh, it's more, actually. I believe you're lying. I think it's, like, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I think it's close to like a good like, third. Like, how long has the album been out? <laughs> for like th- th- three days, three days, four days, something like that. Uh, okay, yeah, it probably is more than 15. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, so uh, that song again, thank you. Which one? I'm sorry. So, I, was just I, saying, I was about to wrap up. If you got another I know you were wrapping it up. I went. I was just going to say again that, that yeah, that Psalm Sing joint is really growing on me. I feel myself still continually yeah, going. That was that, one. that was one of the ones I like instantly pulled out and I have like a playlist where I've been putting like well, it's it's like you said at the beginning. Um wow, full circle shit here. Um you said <laughs> how it feels like no one's really making music for the moment. Well, so I I have a playlist on my Spotify that's um like 2020 songs of the year which is like either a song that I've just really enjoyed or a song that has kind of, you know, I've sort of started to think about like, what does it take for a song to really like represent 2020 and be 2020? Um, Like, for example, one of the ones on there is the lockdown remix with uh, Jid and uh, No Name. Um, And Psalm Sing, usually like I wouldn't throw a song on that playlist until I've heard it like multiple times, but Psalm Sing and, and also Jupiter both just made that playlist on my, like on my first listen. Like they're just so representative of of everything that's everything that's going on, everything that has gone on, and how we're gonna continue to deal with it and come through it and come out the other side, and and not just come. I, when I say come out the other side, I want to stress that it's not like when the vaccine is out and COVID is gone and the election is over and everything's gonna be peachy and happy in twenty twenty one. That's not what I mean by come out the other side. Like that there's an ending. And then all of a sudden we're going to get better. It's it's how to realize that there is a moment where these things are going to get better. But it's, you know, like with the analogy that I made with the fire, the goal is not to shrink the fire back to the size it was before it grew. The goal is to extinguish that shit. And that is what makes this album so good to me is that it's not just the context of 2020 it, it's the perfect moment for it to live in but going forward you know it's the mindset and the inspiration and the battle plan for making ev- just making everything better and just for yourself for other people you know as a group as a society as an individual like spiritually literally it, it is it's just encapsula- encapsulates a lot of things through one moment. Yeah. I'll full circle on your full circle, dog. I think yeah. <laughs> we're doing loops. Yeah, I think it goes all the way back to the Flying Lotus piece of like the, you know, the impending doom again, but also, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to all have to adjust. And I think that that's like, to me, the, again, I mean, just kind of repeating myself, but the epitome of that, that song for 2020 to me really from the moment that I heard it was end of days. And I think that still just totally rings true of like the individual but group dynamic, but also that like, damn, this shit sucks. But like, what the fuck are we going to do about it? I think that song is exactly that energy. Yeah. Um, I guess my last final statement will have to be, um, to once again, uh, we, we are, um, we're living in hell, but we can make hell heaven. So I, that all just, it all depends on us to do so. Amen. So, all right, I'm going to go back and just shout out all of our lovely journalists that we covered again today, starting with 
The Future According to Flying Lotus in The Land Mag by Jeff Weiss. What Do Black Women Need from Hip Hop in 2020 by David Dennis Jr. Um, on Medium. It's the level offshoot of Medium. And then uh, How Spillage Village Hunkered Down in Atlanta and Captured the Chaos of 2020 by Grant Ridner in Rolling Stone. Can I and just, also, I think it's great. Sorry, Brendan. Can I just mention, yeah, just no, real quick, I just want to mention again the, the four women from my piece uh, explicitly. If for some reason we skipped over them and didn't do a direct quote from each of them, though I think we covered all four. But again, uh, just a thank you to Shanita Hubbard, Clarissa Brooks, Drew Dixon, and Danielle Smith for their perspective. Amen. Definitely, definitely. Very important. Um, but then I was just going to say how, how glad I was to have covered um, both Jeff Weiss and David Dennis Jr., on the same episode of the podcast because they're both um, older journalists who I have, you know, sort of followed and I see like the activity and I see the stuff they're doing. Um, And, you know, it's just really great to not just recognize uh, the younger people, but, you know, recognize like older journalists who have been doing good things and doing the right thing for a very long time. Um, So big shout outs to them. Um, as always, listeners, if you are writers, if you follow or regularly read small writers who aren't getting a whole bunch of attention, aren't getting a whole bunch of publicity, send us your stuff, send us their stuff. We will definitely read it. Uh, we would love to present some of it on the podcast because as you know, we're all writers ourselves, we know that we don't always have the largest platforms for great work that we're doing and that you know, if we can use our platform to help that work reach other people uh, who can be affected by it in a positive way, we would love to do it. So thank you very much. Uh, thanks for listening. And shout out Mickey and Tyler as well for joining me on the podcast today. Anytime, anytime. This episode of In Search of Source featured Brandon Hill, Michaela Back, and Tyler Jones of the Central Source Grave Collective. The episode is edited by me, Chai Taylor, Fifth and Podcast Network. Music for the show is touched up by Vasti. Thanks to Joe Breakers for the bid to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth and Podcast Network production. Next to Vasti, Joe Breakers, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time as we continue our search for Source.